So my favorite uh, theological point about these Advent candles uh, is, is why the, the joy candle that we just lit, why it's pink. You know, we, we've got the, this beautiful array of, of purple, and purple is, you know, the color of royalty as it comes in, actually from a, an old shelf, which, which was hard to come by, so purple dye was very expensive. And so uh, they had to, thousands of shellfish they had to get to just get this little bit of purple dye. So incredibly expensive. And then all of a sudden you've got this one candle that's different. You've got this pink candle. And you look up the reason why. It's because it's a happy color. <laughs> but that, that's the theological reason for why the joy candle is pink. Because it's a happy color. And, and, and I, I greatly appreciate just the, this little nod to, to just the, the humanity of us. You know, you, you see this little break. And, you know, I think you, you see that it's setting apart. It, it, it stands out. You know, the Christ candle's in the center. And, of course, we understand why that candle is so wonderful. But the joy candle stands out from the rest. And, and I think it's incredibly important for us to understand this week what this whole thing's about. Luke 2. I've got this passage for us. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Good news that will bring you great joy. And, and I think that the, the basic fundamental misunderstanding about the church and religion and Christ and Jesus and what this whole thing is about is that it's good news. You know, the, the stereotype that has come out is it's all about judgment and, and your failure and making you feel bad and, and all this eternal consequence for our things. But the, the fundamental message that came was do not be afraid, do not have anxiety, Great joy has come to all people. That's the good news. That, that's why this candle stands out. If there's one thing that we can see, if there's one takeaway the angels are saying, if there's one thing to look for, understand the goodness of this moment. Rejoice. Rejoice. And I think we struggle with this because is that an invitation? Is that a, a command? Is it, no, re- you better rejoice. You know, you, you've, you've got to find this. One of my, my favorite etymologists, we all have our favorite etymologists, right? Yeah. So <laughs> whoever your favorite etymologist is, mine, uh, mine had this, this recent thing that I, I listened to this week, and I love when these things kind of pop up. And it was just listening to her podcast this week, and, and she mentioned this, this line that her, her current pet peeve, and I thought, oh, I can relate to her so well. <laughs> her current pet peeve is when she'll go to a restaurant or she'll be eating out somewhere, They'll give her her food, and then they say, enjoy. And that gets her mad. <laughs> and the reason she said is because the, the way that that word is being used. Like, what are you, are you commanding me to enjoy this? What if I, you can't command my emotions. You can't tell me how to feel about this food. You know, you're, you're telling me enjoy. It, or if it's this invitation, you, you say it in a very flat manner. Like, I, I hope you enjoy this meal. But, and they went through this whole understanding of why this is such a, a hard thing in language to express what we're trying to say. You need some sort of signal of like, go ahead and go. I give this to you, you know, and have this meal. Um, but it's this understanding still that our joy, our sense of satisfaction, really isn't something that can be commanded. Even when you look through Scripture, when, when the Lord is speaking to his people, 
about how we should be, how we should rejoice before the Lord, it's almost always let the world rejoice. Let the angels in heaven rejoice. Let your soul rejoice. It's let it happen. It's like stop all those things that are blocking it up. Just let it happen. Let the, the joy come to you. Let, let this fact about who God is take root in your life. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to be happy. <laughs> it's not a very fruitful activity. You know, you can, you can say, I'm only going to think about good things. You know, maybe if the fairy dust, if it was on me right now, I'd start flying. You know, whatever it is. You know, we, we want to be able to, to control our heart, control our will, control our emotions. But they don't respond to our will. But they do respond to God himself. When things are all in line, when things are right, the gospel news brings us joy. Let it bring you joy. Don't allow your sin, don't allow your doubt, don't allow your anxiety to be the loudest thing in the room. Let the gospel bring you joy. So a hard thing for me to say, and I want to phrase it this way on purpose, but joy is not optional. Joy is not optional for the Christian life. Joy is not an an optional part of it. Our Heavenly Father is not indifferent to our happiness. Joy is not a garnish on the dutiful entree of our Christian life. And I think we think of that way. Like, I've got forgiveness. I've got repentance. I've got those things. If I have any joy, well, that's that's just bonus. You know, like, like I'm going to take this deeply theologically important stuff, and that's going to be the substance of my life. And, and if there's any joy to be found, well, that's just, that's fantastic. But I don't need it. That's not the part of, of me that, that I need. I think that is... I don't know if it's puritanical. I don't know if it's just American. I don't know if it's just, you know, maybe the way I see things being maybe more, uh, less emotionally driven in my life. But that is, I think, not at all what scripture has ever called our attention to. Joy is not the icing on our cake, but it's an essential ingredient in a complex batter. I found that online. I thought that was a great statement. It's an essential ingredient in a complex batter. It's throughout the Bible. Throughout the entirety of scripture, throughout every context, throughout every culture, throughout prophecy and promise and slavery and exodus and hope and loss and despair, you have joy in many ways. From one joy is commanded uh, of God's first covenant people, Israel, and I've got a whole list of here, so I've got references. You can, you can sight check me on this, but I'm just going to give them to you. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king from Psalm 149. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. There's again that let joy happen from Psalm 14. Rejoice in the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart from Psalm 32. There's hundreds more instances throughout the Old Testament. Outside of Israel, God commands all nations to rejoice in their maker. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy from Psalm 67. He commands the natural world to join in the glory. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice in Psalm 96. In the New Testament, God himself in full manhood doesn't change his tune once he becomes the man of sorrows in our fallen world, as we understand from Isaiah but commands our joy as much as anyone and gives us even more reason to rejoice. Rejoice and be glad, Christ said, for your reward is great in heaven in Matthew 5. Leap for joy in Luke 6. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven from Luke 10. Joy is possible, a joy so real and rich that we turn to friends and neighbors and say, as he says in Luke 15, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. This is what it's about. Let's be joyful together. If it weren't plain enough, the Apostle Paul, who is not a, what you think of as a happy guy, 
drives it home further in his letters, rejoice in hope, rejoice with those who rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice in 2 Corinthians, rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians, the joy tidal wave of Philippians, be glad and rejoice with me, Philippians 2, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice always, again I will say, rejoice, it's one of the most common words that we have, and not that we're dull to the multifaceted pains of life in this age, but in Christ, we have access to joy that's simultaneous and deeper than the greatest of our sorrows. And it says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, that we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Now, th- th- this is a strange thing. You know, th- I think we have a confused concept at this point about what this is actually trying to get at, what, what feelings I should be having or, or what we're talking about. And I, I thought that this was such a, a well-known point that I never wanted to say this every time I talked about joy because I just th- thought everybody's so sick of hearing it. But the more that I've done this, the more I realize that I think it cannot be stressed enough. That joy is not happiness. Joy is not just laughter. Joy is something, I wouldn't say entirely different. I, I think that I like the, the words that say, you know, if, if compassion isn't just being nice, if, if being kind to somebody isn't just being nice, can we at least say that it starts off with that? <laughs> you know, if, if it goes deeper than that, let's say it at least includes not biting the head off of my children. You know, it, if we're going to be a compassionate people, it starts there. And I think the same thing with joy. If joy is not laughter, it at least includes that. If joy is not happiness, at least it includes some of those emotions we know. But C.S. Lewis wrote a book, Surprised by Joy, and I think it's such a great title because what he's talking about is his coming to faith. From an atheistic, then agnostic background, he came to faith. And the way he talks about it is being a reluctant um, convert. He really didn't want to believe this stuff because it didn't fit his sensibilities. So he was reluctant to come to faith But then he says he was surprised by the joy that he found once he was in God's grace. He writes this, Joy, which is here a technical term, and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures of the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. I think that's so important we understand that joy is not in our power. That's why I love that, that frame, let it happen. Let, let, let the joy of the Lord come. Let, let the heavens and earth rejoice. Let, it, let this natural state of being have its full light and day. Let joy happen as the Lord directs it. He also writes this, All joy reminds. It's never a possession, but it's always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Again, it's a hope in the other, not in myself. I, don't, I can't rejoice in the same way of, of my accomplishments. I can be prideful. I can have happiness. I can feel pleasure in, in my own good work. But joy, as we're talking about, is fully rooted in the other. And I, I think we can taste this and see this a little bit like with our kids. You know, whenever somebody that we love, maybe it's your, your parents, maybe it's your siblings, maybe it's your friends, when somebody achieves something and you're just happy for them, you know that selfless feeling you get of watching somebody that you love succeed? It's a wonderful feeling because you, you realize that I'm, I'm just, I'm for you. I'm for you and you have something good. And I, I take delight in the fact that you have achieved something. 
And I think in that sense, whenever we have this joy of the Lord, whenever we have his good news having its natural effect on our lives, it can't be overwhelmed, it can't be quenched by the things of this world. But in this world, I think our view on joy has unfortunately become competitive and compulsory. And what I mean by that is that, that we often judge our joy, our satisfaction by everybody else. You know, am I laughing as much as they are? Do I have as much as they have? Do I smile as much? Do I have as many friends, as many likes on social media? It's a comparative thing. And you often feel like if I don't have as much, maybe I'm not as joyful. And we'll actually recede and we'll, we'll fall back just by, by comparing our lives to somebody else. Well, look how much they have and look how happy they are. Well, if I had that, I could be happy too, but I, I don't. And, and we just naturally seed back into this rhythm of this life and this fallenness and this sorrowful world when let joy come to you. And we see it as compulsory. Somewhere along the line, uh, a well-lived life came to me and I just want you to be happy. Parents started saying that to their kids, and I heard some psychologists talking about this. And, and what they said was, it was actually well-intended that you say to your child, I just want you to be happy. And what you mean by that is, I'm not going to burden you with success. I'm not going to burden you with morality. I'm not going to burden you with all these things. I just want you to have a well-lived life is what we're trying to say. But there was this whole study about, you know, why maybe the new generation is so anxious and depression, and why that we see suicide rates just skyrocketing. And what they say is this idea that I just want you to be happy has put this burden and this compulsion on people that you constantly examine yourself. Am I happy enough? If I'm not, there's something wrong with me or I'm not succeeding the way that I should be. And so we're judging our, uh, the, the value of our life by the feelings that we have. And no longer do we push through the valley, the shadow of death, but we say the only well-lived life is a happy life. The only successful life is one that is full of joy, this idea of laughter and, and pleasure and pursuit, not as C.S. Lewis was talking about. So what it is, y'all know George Mallory? I got a picture of him here. George Mallory, he was a famed mountain climber who may have been uh, the first person ever to reach the top of Mount Everest. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened. In the early 1920s, he led a number of attempts to scale the mountain. He was eventually being killed in the third attempt in 1924. Uh, they did not find and recover his body until 1999, though, which was well-preserved by the snow and ice, 27,000 feet up in the mountain, just 2,000 feet from the peak. Uh, but he had never given up. And his body was found face down on this rocky slope. His head was towards the summit. His arms were extended high over his head. His toes were in the mountain. His fingers were, were there. It looked as if to the end he was struggling with this mountain. Um, in 1922, he was asked, why climb Everest? Why do this thing? And, and he didn't know it was going to be his death, but he certainly knew it was a possibility. And he says this, the first question which you will ask and which I must try to answer is this, what is the use of climbing Mount Everest? My answer must at once be, it is no use. There's not the slightest prospect of any gain whatsoever. Oh, we may learn a little bit about the behavior of the human body at high altitudes. Possibly medical men may turn our observation to some account for the purpose of aviation, but otherwise nothing will come of it. We shall not bring back a single bit of gold or silver, not a gem, nor any coal or iron. We shall not find a single foot of earth that can be planted with crops to raise food. It's no use. So if you cannot understand that there's something in man which responds to the challenge of this mountain, goes out to meet it, 
that the struggle is a struggle of life itself, upward and forever upward, then you won't see why we go. What we get from this adventure is just sheer joy. And joy is, after all, the end of life. We do not eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to enjoy life. We do not live to eat and make money. We eat and make money to be able to enjoy life. That is what life means and what life is for. So if we draw a sharp contrast between happiness and pleasure and joy, then we must understand that the end of this is joy. And this is why I don't think joy is optional. Because the actual substance of life itself must include joy, a satisfaction, a deep satisfaction, and even pleasure in what God has done, what God has given us, the invitation we have to know him in this context, to come and fall at his feet, and to understand this is a well-lived life. This is what life is meant to be like. And being here, being in his presence, partaking in his good gifts, understanding this thing, seeing the world through this ways, all I can do is but enjoy it. There's no other outcome I can have. If I see him clearly, if I understand him purely, if I'm at his feet and there's not this veil of confusion between us, if I know his gift, I've got to rejoice. Worship has to Why do we sing so much? And people say that sometimes. Why do you all sing so much? What else can you do? Do you, do you know what, why we gather? I mean, I, hopefully everybody here has heard the gospel. If not, I got some great news to tell you. But if you have it, if you've already heard this, guess what? Let's just celebrate. Let's celebrate the goodness of God. Let's celebrate his presence and his gift to his people because that's natural and it's right that though the storms of life may swell, he will be Emmanuel no matter what comes. Joy is this deep satisfaction with life because it's life as it should be. Life as it's meant to be, life as God prescribed, as he breathed it into man and woman's lungs, as we tasted from that and said, this is goodness. Joy has got to be strong enough to withstand discipline. Sometimes in life, discipline comes to us and we feel like, oh, I've screwed up and we go into despair and fear and anxiety. Joy has got to be strong enough to withstand discipline. So that when God comes and speaks, Scripture says rejoice. Rejoice when you receive discipline because he disciplines those that he loves. It's only possible if you understand this is giving me a gift. This is giving me life as it's meant to be lived. God's discipline is a source of joy, not of fear and anxiety. And when we realize, just, just have that moment of realization that if some hardship comes and your joy suffers, realize that maybe I'm not tapped into the stuff that the angel was telling us about. Maybe I've been looking comparatively and competitively and compulsory at my emotions instead of seeing what God has given me. Joy has to be strong enough to withstand discipline. Joy has to be strong enough to withstand suffering. And the strength of joy isn't in ignorance or ignoring or casting blind eyes or a lack of compassion at the troubles of this world. It's simply from digging deep enough into the stuff of life itself, being so connected to the source of life that we abide in the Father and we have nothing else that we can be but joyful. Joy in all these Advent topics, hope, peace, joy, love, they have to be as accessible not just to the well-off, not to the healthy, not to the wealthy, but accessible to all of God's children. Or we have to realize that there's something untrue about them. 
If what we're talking about only makes sense in middle-class America or, or, or high-class America, it doesn't ring true in Russia. It doesn't ring true for the, the impoverished. It doesn't ring true in Panama. It doesn't ring true in, in Africa and China. If it doesn't ring true, if these messages don't apply there, then there's something untrue about them, and we need to reconcile that. But when we realize that joy is as accessible to a child born into a famine-stricken country as it is accessible to me here, then we're connected to the gospel. Then we're connected to the good news of what God has done. And everything outside those boundaries, everything that, that, that is dependent upon circumstance, everything that's dependent upon who I can be, my wealth, my, my intelligence, my job, my economic class, everything that's outside those bounds, we've got to cut that off and realize that is not what the angels were talking about. That angels came and Mary rejoiced as a pregnant teen, <laughs> unwed, because she knew God's good news had come to her. She had been chosen and loved, and this good news was for all nations. So we're told then that if we can rejoice, that we can rejoice that we can have satisfaction with life, even if we're less fortunate, even if we don't have, even if we do have, our source of joy is the same. One reason that the Bible is so relentless insisting on our joy is because of the goodness of God himself. The imperative to joy in us is based on the indicative of goodness in him. So it says, you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. Deuteronomy 26.11 that's, a, that's an amazingly powerful statement. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. You shall do it. Like th- this is, th- it, it's that, that, again, that weird part between an imperative and a command and an invitation, but it's just statement. This, this is how things should work. You will, th- your body will respond this way. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you. Joy in the heart of the creature corresponds to goodness in the heart of the Creator. Joy is the fitting response in the receiver to the goodness of who God is. His promises through Jeremiah comes home to us in Christ. I, re- I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all of my heart and all of my soul. That's what Jeremiah told us. I will rejoice in doing them good. The Lord rejoices over us. He rejoices in doing good. He does this. He plants this in us. Lord, your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing from Zephaniah. What a powerful statement. God is good. His goodwill is for us. The good news is that he comes close. And where there's fear, where there's anxiety, where there's sorrow, it will change. We, we will see him clearly. I believe we all want joy. You know, I don't think I have to try to convince you that you want joy. Who, who would look at this and say, ah, I don't know. I mean, like, do I really want to be happy? We're, most of us are not like the Grinch in that statement. That, that if you're actually seeing, you know, I could be a happy person or a miserable person, we're going to say, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll take a little of the happiness. I don't really want to be sorrowful. But a common saying around joy is that it, it's a choice. And, and that always grates me. Because I don't see that it is a choice because we can't command ourselves to enjoy it. But we can commit to it. We can commit to it. So while we can't command it, while we can't make this thing happen, while we can't force our will, we can commit to it. And by that I mean the source of joy itself, not joy in itself. So what's the connection between commitment and joy? Being really, really bad at something 
is the first step to being really good at something, okay? If, if you're going to do anything, and, and this is not a, don't, don't think of this only as a religious exercise. What do you want to do in this life? If you want to be a musician, you don't start off playing Mozart, you know, and, and, and just sit down and say, oh, look, I just intrinsically knew how to do this. No, no, no. You start off being really, really bad at things. You don't know how to read the notes. You can't find the rhythm. You can't find the melody. You, you can't sing well. You, you don't know the names of these things. You're really, really bad at it, and that's okay. And then you commit to it, and you work it out. Now, the thing is, there's some pleasure that, that I know kids have, because my kids have this, from just pounding on keys on a keyboard, right? There's a piano in the room. Let's just make noise. Bum, 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 bum. And then they get bored, and they walk away right? Because that's a, a fleeting pleasure. It's not a, a deep-seated satisfaction. But if you know a musician who's not practicing because they have a recital coming up, who's not practicing because their parents told them to, but a musician who loves music, it brings them delight. They committed to this thing, and they started walking it out, and they found great pleasure and satisfaction that I can do this thing well. I can do this thing, and I appreciate this thing so much better. There's a great deep joy in music and making it and writing it and listening to it from the perspective of a musician. Many of us in life only commit so far to so many activities as far as our dipping our toe in the water. And, and we do this with a lot of things, and it's not necessarily bad. We don't commit to everything that comes your way. That would be a really hard life if you commit to everything that came your way. But we, we, we have this tendency of just, just trying the water out and saying, ah, I don't know. I'm going to check this out. I'm going to check everything out. Then, then we'll see where I go from here. We make sure that we have an exit strategy. And I think we see that with careers. Unfortunately, we see that with marriages. I think we tell ourselves the lie that you can't judge me by this thing if I don't really go all in. And it's this way of, of preserving my self-image. Like, if I don't really commit to this thing and, and, it, and it fails, then, well, okay. No harm lost. I, I didn't really have skin in that game. And we learn this habit of not committing to things, especially if we don't feel this, this basic, like, goodness that I can do this thing well. So we pull back, and we lose joy. We lose joy. The sad part is that then we don't really enjoy it. People are deeply satisfied by things all around us. People enjoy painting and sunsets, their pets, their family, their God-given work, ministry, because they go all in, because they have skin in the game, because they're committed to this thing. And as they are committed to it, the deep things of life, the deep things that God has done, become evident. There is a goodness of God throughout this world. There's a goodness of God to be found in creative arts. There really is. He made this world with beauty. And when we're connected, when we commit to seeing this, to being the best painter, to, to being the best photographer, to finding things on, on trail paths and understanding and appreciating nature, you are connecting to one of the things that God put in this world. What a wonderful thing. You can get a God-given joy from all of these things. It's not just theology, it's life. I don't know if you've ever had this perspective where you see somebody enjoying something and it says, you know, I want to enjoy something as much as they do. You know, I want to enjoy X as much as that person does. I love being around passionate people, doing what they're passionate about. The, the etymology of the word cool is that you're never hot about things. You're just cool. You're just laid back. You're, you're the guy in the corner. You know, you, you never commit. You're just, whatever happens around you, you're, you're just going to let it go and, and let it be what it is. And if, if you're excited about something, what do we say? Oh, they're, they're geeking out about it, <laughs> right? 
Our, our words betray something about us. We don't think it's cool to, to be all in. It's not cool to, to do that. It's cool to, to just withdraw and just let them do their thing. But don't geek out about these things. The thing is with joy, joy doesn't diminish by being shared. It grows. Sorrow actually diminishes when it gets shared. But if you see somebody enjoying something and it gets attacked, have you ever seen this thing? I've, I've got this, this joke, shh, the, the, the comic here. Let people enjoy things. Christians, we, we, need, <laughs> we need to learn a lesson from this, all right? Let people enjoy things. Don't be a party pooper because there is God to be found in places you've not seen him. The good story of God is being revealed all around us. And when somebody is deep in music, when somebody is deep in art, when somebody's deep in friendship and relationship, when somebody's out there, where is God in that? Look for that and call that out. Call that and acknowledge that the God is at work here. Do you know anybody who holds joy captive? How dare you be happy whenever I'm suffering? How dare you be happy whenever I'm struggling with, with suicidal thoughts or depression? How dare you be happy when there's starving children, you know, in Africa? Like, how dare you? Because what, who are we to, to have that? Christ isn't dismissive of people suffering or need when his disciples were feasting. But commitment costs you choices. If you commit to finding joy in something, if you commit to go deep, you're going to forego some happiness, you're going to forego some pleasure and other good and worthwhile avenues. But joy awaits you. But the thing is, it's never too late. I, that one before here of the, of the musician here. One of my absolutely favorite quotes of all time is from this guy here. His name is Pablo Casals. Uh, he performed at the UN recently at the age of 81. He agreed to have a, a, a movie made about him called A Day in the Life of Pablo Casals. He is a famous cellist. And uh, he was asked by this interviewer why he continued to practice four and five hours a day at the age of 81. Do you know what he said? Because I think I'm making progress. <laughs> and we laugh at that. But what a great boy. That's going somewhere. He knows that he has pleasure in this thing, and it's got a direction. He's connected to something. He's making progress. He enjoys this thing. The, the theme for this whole Advent thing is that this is the time for joy. This is the time for joy. With the Advent of our Savior, what joys be found? Christ said, it's right for the servants, the bridegroom, to feast when he's with them. I'm constantly struck by the disciples exclaiming, you alone have the words of life. You know, a hard teaching came, people left, and he said, are you going to leave me too? And they said, you, you alone have the words of life. They were committed to him. They found they could abide in him, get their life from him. But not life as they knew it before, life as it was meant to be lived. Like what George Mallory was talking about, life itself, the, the end of life, this joy that we're meant to have, they found that it was in Christ. They saw, like, all these things I long for, they're all met in you. Caesar couldn't give them that. A life of fishing couldn't give them that. A life of wealth, being a tax collector, couldn't give them that. Small life, living for just you and your family, can't give you that. So let's, let's do that, that whole passage justice. It says, when the bridegroom is taken from them, then they will fast. That's the scripture. So should we walk around doing without, denying ourselves this because Jesus is no longer with us, refusing life's delights until he comes again? Of course not. That's not what the scripture here in Matthew 9 is telling us. Because what happens is Christ left us, and he said, it's better for you that I go, because I'm going to send another one, the helper, 
the Holy Spirit. So we have as much, if not more, of a reason to enjoy, to feast, than, what, than Christ's disciples. Our joy will not be perfect in this life. We'll always strain, we'll always struggle, we'll have our angst and our anxieties, we have our ups and our downs. Yet even here we have tastes. Not only is, is joy coming, but even now we have these samples of sweetness. And 1 Peter 1.8 says this so clearly. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Even though we don't see him, even though we don't have this fully, even though we know more is to come, even though it's imperfect, we rejoice with joy. I love that too, the, the, the reiteration. We rejoice with joy. What else, how else could you rejoice? So church, I want you to commit to a well-lived life. Dig deep. Don't stay on the surface. Believe we're made for joy, and yet anxiety and fear and depression come and they oppress us. The answer isn't to try harder or to just choose joy. The answer is to engage with the Holy Spirit. Engage with the Holy Spirit. Find what he's doing. Find where he's pouring his love into your life and dig deep. And it's going to be different for the different people here. You know, there's people here who are wonderful mechanics and they can see God in this. There's people here who are brilliant thinkers. There's creative people in this room. There's musicians in this room. How has the Lord made his joy available to you? How has he made his character available to you? Dig deep. Because I'm afraid that, that you might think that what we're saying is that the only true joy to be found is a religious joy. And I will say that it's, that's true insofar as God's made that joy available in all these different avenues. In all these different avenues. Paul Brand was a, a brilliant medical doctor who did pioneering work in uh, leprosy. And this is a picture of him uh, tending to a, a, a patient in, um, in India. He grew up in India where his parents were missionaries. At the age of nine, he was sent to boarding school. Uh, five years later, he received a telegram uh, informing him that his father had died of Blackwater uh, fever. And a few days after that, he actually received a letter from his father the last correspondence sit before he died. And this letter said this, God means us to delight in his world. It isn't necessary to know botany or zoology or biology in order to enjoy the manifold life of nature. Just observe and remember and compare and be always looking to God with thankfulness and worship for having placed you in such a delightful corner of the universe as the planet Earth. What a wonderful statement. How wonderful. I think that that's such a life-giving perspective. You know, that this world is just filled with the opportunity to rejoice. No matter your circumstance, no matter the sorrow, no matter what, what you've been given, no matter your in intellect, no matter your, your socioeconomic status, what has the Lord given to you? And can we see his face in that? I want to end with this one point of, of Wimber's Honeycomb. I, I talk about this one a lot, and if you're not familiar, I'm just going to give it to you again in, in brief. That Wimber, after the first time that, that he had an a, uh, a experience where somebody was healed in his ministry, the first time he just was so excited, he's driving, and then he had an, what he called an, an open-eyed vision where he saw a honeycomb above the horizon. He saw honey dripping. And there's people there, and some people were like really excited that there's like, you know, honey, and they're, they're enjoying the, this honey. Other people were like, ugh, this is sticky, and, and this is a mess, and I don't want to have anything to do with this. 
And he saw this before him, and he asked the Lord what was going on, and, and, and he said, you know, that's my mercy, Johnny. You know, it, it's, it's available for everybody, but not everybody receives it. Not everybody rejoices in it. Not everybody takes delight in this. And I think the hard part for me is feeling like maybe I'm in category A when I want to be in category B. You know, that, that, that there's this part of me that it's raining outside and there's puddles and my kids are like, come on, Dad, let's go jump in puddles. I'm like, yeah, that'd be fun. Oh, it's going to ruin my shoes. <laughs> you know, and, and I feel this check of wisdom, you know, that may, maybe I can't do this thing that I want to do. Like, hey, Dad, will you stop work right now at 2 o'clock on a Wednesday because you work from home and, and will you play a game with me? Hey, that'd be, I have a conference call. You know, and, and I, I want to enjoy, I want to engage, I want to have this life that, that's free, but I have responsibility and I have duty and, 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 and I feel like I, I can't break out of these things. And I feel like maybe I'm, I'm category person A when I, I really want to be B and I feel like there's this war with myself. And it's like, is this a choice? Those people that were looking at this honey that was on them, they just thought, oh, what a mess. You think of Mary and Martha and how you, you, you've got two different people responding to Christ's presence before them. God's people humble themselves and, and pray when we dig into these things of God and he comes, he heals their land. We can rejoice in that. Even when your body fails you, can we rejoice in that? No matter what circumstances we have, can we rejoice in that? Can we engage with this? And I think that what I'm saying, church, is I don't want this to be seen as fatalism. The way you are, the way that you relate to things, the way you see healing, the way you see the people around you, let's not accept those things as fatalism. Because when God comes, we can be changed. And I think that, that the way that we, we are naturally, whenever we're remade, when we see him, when we're connected, when we let his joy do what his joy will do to us, then like, like the Grinch and his heart grew three sizes that day. You know, and I feel that the source of joy not being optional, this invitation we have, that if we want to stay up all night and stare at stars, even knowing that we're going to get tired the next day, don't allow fear and anxiety to pull us away from the things that God is doing. And I think that sometimes we have to make that commitment. We have to say, I will be a person who will pursue these things. And understanding that my heart might lag behind, understanding that it might take some time, that I have to let this work accomplish its thing, but I have to commit to the path of joy. So I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us for freedom. Pray for us for perspective. And church, I hope that we make this commitment. You know, that we dig deep into these things of life and that we walk out of here, out of this room today with this understanding that, that God has made me for joy. Melanie, you want to come up? Melanie's going to pray. She's going to play. I'm going to pray. Those words came out very similarly. Th- this... Uh, Again, I don't want you to feel like this, this is, these are just words. I think that this is, is accessible, and, and I'm not going to take the temperature of the room, but I, I would say overall every single person I've ever met in life over the age of maybe eight <laughs> doesn't have joy the way that I think we're meant to. I think we've allowed fear and anxiety and worry and stress to wear us down um, to some extent. And some of us worse than others, some of us better than others. This isn't, this isn't comparative, this isn't, this isn't compulsory. But I do want to say that it's a gift. And if you would let joy come, I think we'd be better off for it. 
I think we'd show the glory of God to a world that needs it better off.